Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello everyone, I'm Julie, and here we have episode 268 of Forgotten Classics. Some Halloween short stories. First, though, let me tell you about a couple other places where you can hear Halloween things. One is Halloween Haunter, and I have told you about that many years in a row. I'm surprised they still find new things to talk about, and they do. It's just a few minutes long, every few days, and sometimes it's a poem, maybe by Edgar Allan Poe. Sometimes it's fact-based, like the history of trick-or-treating. Sometimes it's a spooky legend. It's always fun. And the other is LibriVox has a post where they have put 10 lesser known Halloween oriented things that you might be interested in. Some are books like mysteries, spooky mysteries. Some are fact based things. And they all looked very interesting. So I will put a link to that in case you're interested. Now for our stories this week, I delved into one of my favorite books of ghost stories. The Big Book of Ghost Stories calls itself the most complete collection of uncanny, spooky, creepy tales ever collected. And I can believe it. This thing is huge. It's almost 900 pages. It's a 9 by 6 book, so it's a pretty good-sized book, page. And the type is not huge, like you find in a lot of these. It's double-columned on each page. And, boy, it's got old, it's got new. I mean, there are some really old stories, like, you know, classics by Rudyard Kipling and Oscar Wilde, people like that. But there are also some new ones. Fairly new, I'm going to say. And then I guess some from in between, which you don't often see by the likes of Isaac Asimov. This collection was put together and edited by Otto Penzler. You may have heard of him if you read Mysteries because he has the Mysterious Bookshop in New York City. He also has all these big collections of mysteries and these supernatural sorts of tales. He has the Vampire Archives, there's a zombie book, there's this big book of ghost stories, there's the Christmas Mystery book, which I also have. I love his collections. I'm not crazy about the way he grouped these. I would rather just have had them thrown in there all together. I understand this desire to kind of pull them out for you. But when you look at things and there's a section called, I must be dreaming or I'm not dead yet. Well, that kind of gives away what's going on. So what I did once I figured that out was I would just start flipping it open and going through. And when I was starting to hit a lot of repeat stories, then I just started through from the beginning and ignored the sections they were in. The other thing that's really great about this is before each story, he has a really great introduction. It's not very long. But for each author, some of the other things they've written, what they were really well known for. And so that can be handy in case you want to find other stories by these people. I thought I would read you two stories. Of course, anything in here is pretty appropriate for Halloween. One is called The Nightwire by H.F. Arnold. And it looks as if, from the introduction, he only ever wrote three stories in his whole career. He was a newspaper man. And this story testifies to that because the Nightwire, just so you know, was 
the fact that back in the day when this was written, 1926, you had to have people sitting there to take the stories as they came over the wire, like the telegraph wire, and translate them for everybody into copy. So that's the context for this story. And I'm not going to say much more about this, except for the fact that my oldest daughter, Hannah, borrows this book and takes it whenever she and her friends all go camping. And this is the story that gets the most chills around the campfire. So it's got that credential going for it. This other story is called The Toll House by W.W. Jacobs. That makes us think of a toll road, or perhaps as my husband said, Toll House Cookies, which is the super old name for chocolate chip cookies. But I chose it because not only did I find it really creepy, but it's by the author who wrote the famous story, The Monkey's Paw. Otto Penzler tells us that this author was actually really popular in his day for his very humorous stories. Now, The Toll House only has just a touch or two of that humor at the beginning. It is seriously scary, and I'm going to say it is scary enough that I was reading it in full daylight outside, looking out the window, and about two-thirds of the way through, I was creeping out. I was very frightened, and I felt so stupid, but that was the power of me reading it out loud. I don't know if that will come across to you as you're listening, but wow, it worked. So let's see how creeped out you get. Let's dive in, and I'll meet you on the other side. This story is under copyright and is being read under the Fair Use Act as a sample of The Big Book of Ghost Stories, edited by Otto Penzler. Go to the blog for the show notes for the podcast for more information. The Nightwire by H.F. Arnold New York, September 30th, C.P. Flash. Ambassador Hollywell died here today. The end came suddenly as the ambassador was alone in his study. There is something ungodly about these nightwire jobs. You sit up here on the top floor of a skyscraper and listen in on the whispers of a civilization. New York, London, Calcutta, Bombay, Singapore. They're your next-door neighbors after the streetlights go dim and the world has gone to sleep. Alone in the quiet hours, between two and four, The receiving operators doze over their sounders, and the news comes in. Fires and disasters and suicides. Murders, crowds, catastrophes. Sometimes an earthquake with a casualty list as long as your arm. The nightwire man takes it down almost in his sleep, picking it off on his typewriter with one finger. Once in a long time, you prick up your ears and listen You've heard of someone you knew in Singapore, Halifax, or Paris long ago. Maybe they've been promoted, but more probably they've been murdered or drowned. Perhaps they just decided to quit and took some bizarre way out, made it interesting enough to get it in the news. But that doesn't happen often. Most of the time you sit and doze and tap-tap on your typewriter and wish you were home in bed. Sometimes, though, queer things happen. One did the other night, and I haven't gotten over it yet. I wish I could. 
You see, I handle the night manager's desk in a western seaport town. What the name is doesn't matter. There is, or rather was, only one night operator on my staff. A fellow named John Morgan, about 40 years of age, I should say, and a sober, hard-working sort. He was one of the best operators I ever knew, what is known as a double man. That means he could handle two instruments at once and type the stories on different typewriters at the same time. He was one of the three men I ever knew who could do it consistently, hour after hour, and never make a mistake. Generally, we used only one night wire at night, but sometimes when it was late and the news was coming fast, the Chicago and Denver stations would open a second wire, and then Morgan would do his stuff. He was a wizard, a mechanical automatic wizard, which functioned marvelously, but was without imagination. On the night of the 16th, he complained of feeling tired. It was the first and last time I ever heard him say a word about himself, and I had known him for three years. It was just three o'clock, and we were running only one wire. I was nodding over the reports at my desk and not paying much attention to him when he spoke. Jim, he said, does it feel close in here to you? Why, no, John, I answered, but I'll open a window if you like. Never mind, he said. I reckon I'm just a little tired. That was all that was said, and I went on working. Every ten minutes or so, I would walk over and take a pile of copy that had stacked up neatly beside the typewriter as the messages were printed out in triplicate. It must have been twenty minutes after he spoke that I noticed he had opened up the other wire and was using both typewriters. I thought it was a little unusual, as there was nothing very hot coming in. On my next trip, I picked up the copy from both machines and took it back to my desk to sort out the duplicates. The first wire was running out the usual sort of stuff, and I just looked over it hurriedly. Then I turned to the second pile of copy. I remembered it particularly because the story was from a town I had never heard of. Jabico. Here's the dispatch. I saved a duplicate of it from our files. Jabico, September 16th, CP Bulletin. The heaviest mist in the history of the city settled over the town at four o'clock yesterday afternoon. All traffic has stopped, and the mist hangs like a pall over everything. Lights of ordinary intensity fail to pierce the fog, which is constantly growing heavier. Scientists here are unable to agree as to the cause, and the local weather bureau states that the like has never occurred before in the history of the city. At 7 p.m. last night, the municipal authorities... More. That was all there was. Nothing out of the ordinary at a bureau headquarters, but, as I say, I noticed the story because of the name of the town. It must have been fifteen minutes later that I went over for another batch of copy. Morgan was slumped down in his chair and had switched his green electric light shade so that the gleam missed his eyes and hit only the top of the two typewriters. Only the usual stuff was in the right-hand pile, but the left-hand batch carried another story from Shibiko. All press dispatches come in takes, meaning that parts of many different stories are strung along together, perhaps with but a few paragraphs of each coming through at a time. This second story was marked Add Fog. Here's the copy. At 7 p.m., the fog had increased noticeably. All lights were now invisible, and the town was shrouded in pitch darkness. As a peculiarity of the phenomenon, the fog is accompanied by a sickly odor, 
comparable to nothing yet experienced here. Below that, in customary press fashion, was the hour, 327, and the initials of the operator, J.M. There was only one other story in the pile from the second wire. Here it is. Second ad. Shibiko Fog. Accounts as to the origin of the mist differ greatly. Among the most unusual is that of the sexton of the local church, who groped his way to headquarters in a hysterical condition and declared that the fog originated in the village churchyard. It was first visible as a soft gray blanket clinging to the earth above the graves, he stated. Then it began to rise higher and higher. A subterranean breeze seemed to blow it in billows which split up and then joined together again. Fog phantoms writhing in anguish twisted the mist into queer forms and figures, and then, in the very thick midst of the mass, something moved. I turned and ran from the accursed spot. Behind me I heard screams coming from the houses bordering on the graveyard. Although the sexton's story is generally discredited, a party has left to investigate. Immediately after telling his story, the sexton collapsed and is now in a local hospital unconscious. Queer story, wasn't it? Not that we aren't used to it, for a lot of unusual stories come in over the wire. But for some reason or other, perhaps because it was so quiet that night, the report of the fog made a great impression on me. It was almost with dread that I went over to the waiting piles of copy. Morgan did not move, and the only sound in the room was the tap-tap of the sounders. It was ominous, nerve-wracking. There was another story from Jibiko in the pile of copy. I seized on it anxiously. New lead, Jibiko Fog, CP. The rescue party, which went out at 11 p.m. to investigate a weird story of the origin of a fog, which since late yesterday, has shrouded the city in darkness, has failed to return. Another and larger party has been dispatched. Meanwhile, the fog has, if possible, grown heavier. It seeps through cracks in doors and fills the atmosphere with a depressing odor of decay. It is oppressive, terrifying, bearing with it a subtle impression of things long dead. Residents of the city have left their homes and gathered in local churches, where the priests are holding services of prayer. The scene is beyond description, grown folk and children alike terrified, and many are almost beside themselves with fear. Amid the wisps of vapor which partly veil the church auditorium, an old priest is praying for the welfare of his flock. They alternately wail and cross themselves. From the outskirts of the city may be heard cries of unknown voices. They echo through the fog in queer uncadenced minor keys. The sounds resemble nothing so much as wind whistling through a gigantic tunnel. But the night is calm, and there is no wind. The second rescue party. More. I am a calm man, and never in a dozen years spent with the wires have I been known to become excited. But despite myself, I rose from my chair and walked to the window. Could I be mistaken? Or... Far down in the canyons of the city beneath me, did I see a faint trace of fog? Pshaw! It was all imagination. In the press room, the click of the sounders seemed to have raised the tempo of their tune. Morgan alone had not stirred from his chair. 
His head sunk between his shoulders. He tapped out the dispatches on the typewriters with one finger of each hand. He looked asleep, but no. Endlessly, efficiently, the two machines rattled off line after line, as relentlessly and effortlessly as death itself. There was something about the monotonous movement of the typewriter keys that fascinated me. I walked over and stood behind his chair, reading over his shoulder the type as it came into being, word by word. Ah, here was another. Flash. Shibiko CP. There will be no more bulletins from this office. The impossible has happened. No messages have come into this room for twenty minutes. We are cut off from the outside and even the streets below us. I will stay with the wire until the end. It is the end, indeed. Since 4 p.m. yesterday, the fog has hung over the city. Following reports from the sexton of the local church, two rescue parties were sent out to investigate conditions on the outskirts of the city. Neither party has ever returned, nor was any word received from them. It is quite certain now that they will never return. From my instrument, I can gaze down on the city beneath me. From the position of this room on the 13th floor, nearly the entire city can be seen. Now I can see only a thick blanket of blackness where customarily are lights and life. I fear greatly that the wailing cries heard constantly from the outskirts of the city are the death cries of the inhabitants. They are constantly increasing in volume and are approaching the center of the city. The fog yet hangs over everything. If possible, it is even heavier than before, but the conditions have changed. Instead of an opaque, impenetrable wall of odorous vapor, there now swirls and writhes a shapeless mass in contortions of almost human agony. Now and again the mass parts, and I catch a brief glimpse of the streets below. People are running to and fro, screaming in despair. A vast bedlam of sound flies up to my window and above all is the immense whistling of unseen and unfelt winds. The fog has again swept over the city, and the whistling is coming closer and closer. It is now directly beneath me. God! An instant ago the mist opened, and I caught a glimpse of the streets below. The fog is not simply vapor, it lives. By the side of each moaning and weeping human is a companion figure, an aura of strange and varicolored hues. How the shapes cling, each to a living thing. The men and women are down, flat on their faces. The fog figures caress them lovingly. They are kneeling beside them. They are, but I dare not tell it. The prone and writhing bodies have been stripped of their clothing. They are being consumed piecemeal. A merciful wall of hot steaming vapor has swept over the whole scene. I can see no more. Beneath me, the wall of vapor is changing colors. It seems to be lighted by internal fires. No, it isn't. I have made a mistake. The colors are from above, reflections from the sky. Look up. Look up. The whole sky is in flames, colors as yet unseen by man or demon. The flames are moving. They have started to intermix. The colors are rearranging themselves. They are so brilliant that my eyes burn, yet they are a long way off. Now they have begun to swirl, to circle in and out, twisting in intricate designs and patterns. The lights are racing each with each, a kaleidoscope of unearthly brilliance. 
I have made a discovery. There is nothing harmful in the lights. They radiate force and friendliness, almost cheeriness, but by their very strength they hurt. As I look, they are swinging closer and closer a million miles at each jump, millions of miles with the speed of light. Aye, it is the light of quintessence of all light. Beneath it, the fog melts into a jeweled mist, radiant, rainbow-colored, of a thousand various spectra. I can see the streets. Why, they are filled with people. The lights are coming closer. They are all around me. I am enveloped. I... The message stopped abruptly. The wire to Jibiko was dead. Beneath my eyes, in the narrow circle of light, from under the green lampshade, the black printing no longer spun itself letter by letter across the page. The room seemed filled with a solemn quiet, a silence vaguely impressive, powerful. I looked down at Morgan. His hands had dropped nervelessly at his sides while his body had hunched over peculiarly. I turned the lampshade back, throwing light squarely in his face. His eyes were staring, fixed. Filled with a sudden foreboding, I stepped beside him and called Chicago on the wire. After a second, the sounder clicked its answer. Why? But there was something wrong. Chicago was reporting that wire two had not been used throughout the evening. Morgan! I shouted, Morgan, wake up. It isn't true. Someone has been hoaxing us. Why? In my eagerness, I grasped him by the shoulder. His body was quite cold. Morgan had been dead for hours. Could it be that his sensitized brain and automatic fingers had continued to record impressions even after the end? I shall never know, for I shall never again handle the night shift. Search in a world atlas discloses no town of Shibiko. Whatever it was that killed John Morgan will forever remain a mystery. The Toll House by W. W. Jacobs It's all nonsense, said Jack Barnes. Of course, people have died in the house. People die in every house. As for the noises... Wind in the chimney and rats in the wainscot are very convincing to a nervous man. Give me another cup of tea, Meagle. Lester and Whiter first, said Meagle, who was presiding at the tea table of the Three Feathers Inn. You've had two. Lester and White finished to their cups with irritating slowness, pausing between sips to sniff the aroma and to discover the sex and dates of arrival of the strangers which floated in some numbers in the beverage. Mr. Meagle served them to the brim, and then, turning to the grimly expectant Mr. Barnes, blandly requested him to send for hot water. "'We'll try and keep your nerves in their present healthy condition,' he remarked. "'For my part, I have a sort of half-and-half -half belief in the supernatural.' All sensible people have, said Lester. An aunt of mine saw a ghost once. White nodded. I had an uncle that saw one, he said. It is always somebody else that sees them, said Barnes. Well, there is the house, said Meagle. A large house at an absurdly low rent, and nobody will take it. 
It has taken the toll of at least one life of every family that has lived there, however short the time, and since it has stood empty, caretaker after caretaker has died there. The last caretaker died 15 years ago. Exactly, said Barnes, long enough ago for legends to accumulate. I'll bet you a sovereign you won't spend the night there alone for all your talk, said White suddenly. And I, said Lester. No, said Barnes slowly. I don't believe in ghosts, nor in any supernatural things, whatever. All the same, I admit that I should not care to pass a night there alone. But why not, inquired White. (laughs) Wind in the chimney, said Meagle with a grin. Rats in the wainscot, chimed in Lester. As you like, said Barnes, coloring. Suppose we all go, said Meagle. Start after supper and get there about eleven. We have been walking for ten days now without an adventure, except Barnes's discovery that ditchwater smells longest. It will be a novelty at any rate, and if we break the spell by all surviving, the grateful owner ought to come down handsome. Let's see what the landlord has to say about it first, said Lester. There is no fun in passing a night in an ordinary empty house. Let us make sure that it is haunted. He rang the bell, and sending for the landlord appealed to him in the name of our common humanity not to let them waste a night watching in a house in which specters and hobgoblins had no part. The reply was more than reassuring, and the landlord, after describing with considerable art the exact appearance of a head, which had been seen hanging out a window in the moonlight, wound up with a polite but urgent request that they would settle his bill before they went. "'It's all very well for you young gentlemen to have your fun,' he said indulgently. "'But supposing as how you are all found dead in the morning, what about me?' It ain't called the toll house for nothing, you know. Who died there last? inquired Barnes with an air of polite derision. A tramp, was the reply. He went there for the sake of half a crown, and they found him the next morning hanging from the balusters, dead. Suicide, said Barnes. Unsound mind. The landlord nodded. That's what the jury brought it in, he said slowly but his mind was sound enough when he went in there. I'd known him off and on for years. I'm a poor man, but I wouldn't spend the night in that house for a hundred pounds. He repeated this remark as they started on their expedition a few hours later. They left as the inn was closing for the night. Bolts shot noisily behind them, and as the regular customers trudged slowly homewards, they set off at a brisk pace in the direction of the house. Most of the cottages were already in darkness, and lights in the others went out as they passed. It seems rather hard that we have got to lose a night's rest in order to convince Barnes of the existence of ghosts, said White. It's all in a good cause, said Meagle. A most worthy object, and something seems to tell me that we shall succeed. You didn't forget the candles, Lester. I have brought two, was the reply all the old man could spare. There was but little moon, and the night was cloudy. The road between high hedges was dark, and in one place, where it ran through a wood, 
so black that they twice stumbled in the uneven ground at the side of it. Fancy leaving our comfortable beds for this, said White again. Let me see. This desirable residential sepulchre lies to the right, doesn't it? Farther on, said Meagle. They walked on for some time in silence, broken only by White's tribute to the softness, the cleanliness, and the comfort of the bed, which was receding farther and farther into the distance. Under Meagle's guidance, they turned off at last to the right, and after a walk of a quarter of a mile saw the gates of the house before them. The lodge was almost hidden by overgrown shrubs, and the drive was choked with rank growths. Meagle leading, they pushed through it until the dark pile of the house loomed above them. "'There is a window at the back where we can get in, so the landlord says,' said Lester as they stood before the hall door. "'Window?' said Meagle. "'Nonsense. Let's do the thing properly. Where's the knocker?' He felt for it in the darkness and gave a thundering rat-tat-tat at the door. "'Don't play the fool,' said Barnes crossly. "'Ghostly servants are all asleep,' said Meagle gravely. "'But I'll wake them up before I've done with them. It's scandalous keeping us out here in the dark.' He plied to the knocker again, and the noise volleyed in the emptiness beyond. Then, with a sudden exclamation, he put out his hands and stumbled forward, "'Why, it was open all the time,' he said with an odd catch in his voice. "'Come on.' "'I don't believe it was open,' said Lester, hanging back. "'Somebody is playing us a trick.' "'Nonsense,' said Meagle sharply. "'Give me a candle. Thanks. Who's got a match?' Barnes produced a box and struck one, and Meagle, shielding the candle with his hand, led the way forward to the foot of the stairs. "'Shut the door, somebody,' he said. "'There's too much draft.' "'It is shut,' said White, glancing behind him. Meagle fingered his chin. "'Who shut it?' he inquired, looking from one to the other. "'Who came in last?' "'I did,' said Lester. "'But I don't remember shutting it. "'Perhaps I did, though.' Meagle, about to speak, thought better of it, and still carefully guarding the flame, began to explore the house with the others close behind. Shadows danced on the walls and lurked in the corners as they proceeded. At the end of the passage they found a second staircase, and ascending it slowly, gained the first floor. "'Careful!' said Meagle as they gained the landing. He held the candle forward and showed where the balusters had broken away. Then he peered curiously into the void beneath. "'This is where the tramp hanged himself, I suppose,' he said thoughtfully. "'You've got an unwholesome mind,' said White, as they walked on. "'This place is quite creepy enough without you remembering that. "'Now let's find a comfortable room and have a little nip of whiskey apiece and a pipe. "'How will this do?' He opened a door at the end of the passage and revealed a small square room. Meagle led the way with the candle, and first melting a drop or two of tallow, stuck it on the mantelpiece. The others seated themselves on the floor and watched pleasantly as White drew from his pocket a small bottle of whiskey and a tin cup. Hmm, I've forgotten the water, he exclaimed. I'll soon get some, said Meagle. 
He tugged violently at the bell handle, and the rusty jangling of a bell sounded from the distant kitchen. He rang again. Don't play the fool, said Barnes roughly. Meagle laughed. I only wanted to convince you, he said kindly. There ought to be, at any rate, one ghost in the servants' hall. Barnes held up his hand for silence. Yes, said Meagle, with a grin at the other two. Is anybody coming? Suppose we drop this game and go back, said Barnes suddenly. I don't believe in spirits, but my nerves are outside anybody's command. You may laugh as you like, but it really seemed to me that I heard a door open below and steps on the stairs. His voice was drowned in a roar of laughter. He is coming round, said Meagle with a smirk. By the time I have done with him, he will be a confirmed believer. Well, who will go and get some water? Will you, Barnes? No, was the reply. If there is any, it might not be safe to drink after all these years, said Lester. We must do without it. Meagle nodded, and taking a seat on the floor, held out his hand for the cup. Pipes were lit, and the clean, wholesome smell of tobacco filled the room. White produced a pack of cards. Talk and laughter rang through the room and died away reluctantly in distant corridors. Empty rooms always delude me into the belief that I possess a deep voice, said Meagle. Tomorrow I... He started up with a smothered exclamation as the light went out suddenly and something struck him on the head. The others sprang to their feet. Then Meagle laughed. <laughs> it's the candle, he exclaimed. I didn't stick it enough. Barnes struck a match and relighting the candle, stuck it on the mantelpiece and sitting down, took up his cards again. What was I going to say? said Meagle. Oh, I know. Tomorrow I... Listen said White, laying his hand on the other's sleeve. Upon my word, I really thought I heard a laugh. Look here, said Barnes. What do you say to going back? I've had enough of this. I keep fancying I hear things, too. Sounds of something moving about in the passage outside. I know it's only fancy, but it's uncomfortable. You go if you want to, said Meagle, and we will play dummy. Or you might ask the tramp to take your hand for you as you go downstairs. Barnes shivered and exclaimed angrily. He got up and, walking to the half-closed door, listened. Go outside, said Meagle, winking at the other two. I'll dare you to go down to the hall door and back by yourself. Barnes came back and, bending forward, lit his pipe at the candle. I am nervous but rational, he said, blowing out a thin cloud of smoke. My nerves tell me that there is something prowling up and down the long passage outside. My reason tells me that this is all nonsense. Where are my cards? He sat down again, and taking up his hand, looked through it carefully and led. Your play, White, he said after a pause. White made no sign. Why, he is asleep, said Meagle. Wake up, old man, wake up and play. Lester, who was sitting next to him, took the sleeping man by the arm and shook him, gently at first, and then with some roughness, but White, with his back against the wall and his head bowed, made no sign. Meagle bawled in his ear and then turned a puzzled face to the others. He sleeps like the dead, he said, grimacing. 
Well, there are still three of us to keep each other company. Yes, said Lester, nodding. Unless, good Lord, suppose... He broke off and eyed them trembling. Suppose what? inquired Meagle. Nothing, stammered Lester. Let's, let's wake him. Try him again. White. White! It's no good, said Meagle seriously. There's something wrong about that sleep. That's what I meant, said Lester. And if he goes to sleep like that, why shouldn't... Meagle sprang to his feet. Nonsense, he said roughly. He's tired out, that's all. Still, let's take him up and clear out. You take his legs and Barnes will lead the way with a candle. Yes? Who's that? He looked up quickly toward the door. <laughs> Thought I heard somebody tap, he said with a shamefaced laugh. Now, Lester, up with him. One, two, Lester, Lester. He sprang forward too late. Lester, with his face buried in his arms, had rolled over on the floor fast asleep, and his utmost efforts failed to awake him. He is asleep, he stammered. Asleep. Barnes, who had taken the candle from the mantelpiece, stood peering at the sleepers in silence and dropping tallow all over the floor. We must get out of this, said Meagle. Quick. Barnes hesitated. We can't leave them here, he began. We must, said Meagle in strident tones. If you go to sleep, I shall go. Quick, come. He seized the other by the arm and strove to drag him to the door. Barnes shook him off, and putting the candle back on the mantelpiece, tried again to rouse the sleepers. It's no good, he said at last, and turning from them, watched Meagle. Don't you go to sleep, he said anxiously. Meagle shook his head, and they stood for some time in uneasy silence. May as well shut the door, said Barnes at last. He crossed over and closed it gently. Then, at a scuffling noise behind him, he turned and saw Meagle in a heap on the hearthstone. With a sharp catch in his breath, he stood motionless. Inside the room, the candle, fluttering in the draft, showed dimly the grotesque attitudes of the sleepers. Beyond the door, there seemed to his overwrought imagination a strange and stealthy unrest. He tried to whistle but his lips were parched, and in a mechanical fashion he stooped and began to pick up the cards which littered the floor. He stopped once or twice and stood with bent head listening. The unrest outside seemed to increase. A loud creaking sounded from the stairs. Who is there? he cried loudly. The creaking ceased. He crossed to the door and, flinging it open, strode out into the corridor. As he walked, his fears left him suddenly. Come on, he cried with a low laugh. Huh, all of you, all of you, show your faces, your infernal, ugly faces. Don't skulk. He laughed again and walked on, and the heap in the fireplace put out its head tortoise fashion and listened in horror to the retreating footsteps. Not until they had become inaudible in the distance did the listener's features relax. Good Lord, Lester, we've driven him mad he said in a frightened whisper. We must go after him. There was no reply. Meagle sprang to his feet. Do you hear? He cried. Stop your fooling now. This is serious. White, Lester, do you hear? 
He bent and surveyed them in angry bewilderment. All right, he said in a trembling voice. You won't frighten me, you know. He turned away and walked with exaggerated carelessness in the direction of the door. He even went outside and peeped through the crack, but the listeners did not stir. He glanced into the darkness behind and then came hastily into the house again. He stood for a few seconds regarding them. The stillness in the house was horrible. He could not even hear them breathe. With a sudden resolution, he snatched the candle from the mantelpiece and held the flame to White's finger. Then, as he reeled back, stupefied, the footsteps again became audible. He stood with the candle in his shaking hand, listening. He heard them ascending the farther staircase, but they stopped suddenly as he went to the door. He walked a little way along the passage, and they went scurrying down the stairs and then at a jog-trot along the corridor below. He went back to the main staircase, and they ceased again. For a time he hung over the balusters, listening and trying to pierce the blackness below, and then slowly, step by step, he made his way downstairs, and holding the candle above his head, peered about him. Barnes, he called. Where are you? Shaking with fright, he made his way along the passage and summoning up all his courage, pushed open doors and gazed fearfully into empty rooms. Then, quite suddenly, he heard the footsteps in front of him. He followed slowly for fear of extinguishing the candle, until they led him at last into a vast bare kitchen with damp walls and a broken floor. In front of him, a door leading into an inside room had just closed. He ran toward it and flung it open, and a cold air blew out the candle. He stood aghast. Barnes, he cried again. Don't be afraid. It is I, Meagle. There was no answer. He stood gazing into the darkness, and all the time the idea of something close at hand watching was upon him. Then suddenly the steps broke out overhead again. He drew back hastily, and passing through the kitchen, groped his way along the narrow passages. He could now see better in the darkness, and finding himself at last at the foot of the staircase began to ascend it noiselessly. He reached the landing just in time to see a figure disappear around the angle of a wall. Still careful to make no noise, he followed the sound of the steps until they led him to the top floor, and he cornered the chase at the end of a short passage. Barnes, he whispered. Barnes. Something stirred in the darkness. A small circular window at the end of the passage just softened the blackness and revealed the dim outlines of a motionless figure. Meagle, in place of advancing, stood almost as still as a sudden, horrible doubt took possession of him. With his eyes fixed on the shape in front, he fell back slowly, and as it advanced upon him, burst into a terrible cry. Barnes! For God's sake, is it you? The echoes of his voice left the air quivering, but the figure before him paid no heed. For a moment, he tried to brace his courage up to endure its approach. Then, with a smothered cry, he turned and fled. The passages wound like a maze, and he threaded them blindly in a vain search for the stairs. 
If he could get down and open the hall door. He caught his breath in a sob. The steps had begun again. At a lumbering trot, they clattered up and down the bare passages, in and out, up and down, as though in search of him. He stood appalled, and then, as they drew near, entered a small room and stood behind the door as they rushed by. He came out and ran swiftly and noiselessly in the other direction, and in a moment the steps were after him. He found the long corridor and raced along it at top speed. The stairs, he knew, were at the end, and with the steps close behind, he descended them in blind haste. The steps gained on him, and he shrank to the side to let them pass, still continuing his headlong flight. Then, suddenly, he seemed to slip off the earth into space. Lester awoke in the morning to find the sunshine streaming into the room and White sitting up and regarding with some perplexity a badly blistered finger. "'Where are the others?' inquired Lester. "'Gone, I suppose,' said White. "'We must have been asleep.' Lester arose and, stretching his stiffened limbs, dusted his clothes with his hands and went out into the corridor. White followed. At the noise of their approach, a figure which had been lying asleep at the other end sat up and revealed the face of Barnes. "'Why, I've been asleep,' he said in surprise. "'I don't remember coming here. How did I get here?' "'Nice place to come for a nap,' said Lester severely as he pointed to the gap in the balusters. "'Look there. Another yard, and where would you have been?' He walked carelessly to the edge and looked over. In response to his startled cry, the others drew near, and all three stood staring at the dead man below. The footsteps! The footsteps! Here's what I want to know. Why did anyone leave that room? Who would not just huddle up in a corner with your back against the wall candle or no candle, and stay there so that nothing could come at you from behind. I don't know who these people were who were all going running all over the house with only a candle in their hand. That was just nuts. Oh, oh, it's very sad. And then the first story, The Nightwire, was it not interesting how the story turned from this very predictable sounding tale of the fog that's all coming from the graveyard. And by the time the story gets to the end, it's actually more of a HP Lovecraftian sort of a thing where it's the colors from outer space that are coming and you think it's wonderful until, you know, it strips your flesh from your bones and so forth, as the reporter described to us earlier. <laughs> And think about what a short period these writers both took to set the mood, get you in the story, and pull that atmosphere over you. Really an excellent job, I think. I highly recommend the big book of ghost stories. Definitely get it. If you like this sort of thing at all, it's highly entertaining for dipping into all year long. I also wanted to mention something I forgot to bring up last time. October is fundraising month, and if you've listened for very long, you know I'm not asking for money. I'm asking for you to think about podcasts that you really enjoy who do need funding. And if you don't ever have much to give them, even a couple bucks are really appreciated. Because if everybody gave a couple of bucks to the podcast they really love, 
those people would not have any trouble with bandwidth or any of the other costs they have. If you can't even afford that, or if you've only got so much money, but you have other podcasts you like, take the time to write an iTunes review or take the time to drop somebody an email. I mentioned last week that I got an email out of the blue from someone and wow, what a kick it gave me. It was just a bright spot in my day. You know, podcasters aren't doing this for the recognition for the most part. They're doing it for the love of what they do. But it's so nice to know that somebody else genuinely enjoys it too. It's that feeling of camaraderie. Now for me, if you like this podcast, I would really love an iTunes review or an email or a comment. My email is julie, J-U-L-I-E, at glyphnet, G-L-Y-P-H-N-E-T dot com. Of course, iTunes, it's easy to find me. And the blog for the podcast is at hcforgottenclassics.blogspot.com. We have finally really got some very Novemberish, is what I would call it, looking weather. It's been dipping down into the 60s, super windy, gray skies, very Halloweenish. I know I said November, but that's because I'm in Texas. But it has really put me in the perfect frame of mind for reading Ray Bradbury. I don't know what your October reading is like. I know that Scott, my podcasting partner over at A Good Story is Hard to Find, he also likes scary stories. He's been reading H.P. Lovecraft, and I bet he'll get around to The Halloween Tree by Ray Bradbury, which is what I listened to. So if you've got some favorite Halloween reading, let me know. It doesn't have to be Halloween around here for me to read a scary story for one thing. So if it's out of copyright, definitely let me know. And otherwise, we can just recommend good reading, right? Well, you know, the other thing I like besides scary stories is you coming by to listen. Because I definitely wouldn't have read these out loud. And oh my gosh, if I'm creeping myself out with a story in the middle of the day... I'm having a great time. The power of that writing was so wonderful, and I would not have experienced it that way if not for you guys. So thank you so much for coming by to listen. I really appreciate it. Have a great week, everyone, and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.